and welcome to the Shoot Hub podcast. My name is Gemma Raymond, the Shoot Account Manager at Guns on Pegs. I'm joined here today with my co-hosts Digby Taylor and George Brown. And I'm delighted to say that our guest on today's podcast is Dylan Williams. So, hey guys, how are, how are we all getting on? Very good. Thank you, Gemma. Very good. Good of you to join us, Dylan. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Honoured to be on. Okay, so the plan for today's episode is to kind of get to know Dylan a bit better and pick his brain about all things game. Um, And for those of you who don't know Dylan Williams, uh, he spent his career in the shooting industry, founding the Royal Berkshire Shooting School and is now heavily involved with a number of different shooting businesses and organisations. He was instrumental in the formation of the British Game Alliance in 2017 and continues to have a major role to play in Eat Wild and the marketing of game, amongst many other things. But before we get on to that, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Dylan. I feel like we've already had a bit, bit of a chat already, but how has your how's your season kind of been? Have you managed to get out shooting much at all? I must say, uh, being an old man, Gemma, um, I get probably more enjoyment now out of... Um, teaching people in the field, encouraging them to uh, enjoy the sport of shooting. Uh, I still do a lot of lessons at uh, the Royal Barsha Shooting School. Um, But yes, I've spent many days out in the field this year, principally teaching. But I have had, I've been very lucky through the generosity of some incredibly good friends. I had one delightful day early in the year in the Chilterns where everybody had to shoot with 28 balls or smaller. Amazing. My host lent me the most stunning pair of uh, Rigby 28-bore side-by-side double-trigger shotguns. And wow, when it was fascinating, normally when I go shooting, I get a little bit angsty if I miss something because it's not because I'm any good. I just think I should have shot it. But when you shoot something with a 28-bore or a 410, there's a real buzz. And I must say, it was just the most memorable, enjoyable day. It was a glorious day most charming group of guns and um yeah it was exceptional a real one for the uh for the memory bank so i just want to hear that list of list of um descriptors for the guns again so they were rigby side by side 28 ball pair 30 inch barrels the most pretty guns you could ever wish to see. And Rigby, I don't know, someone did say they only made three pairs of them. Now, I may be wrong with that. Mark at Rigby's will be able to tell us. But um, this pair were truly exceptional. They sound gorgeous. I, en- I enjoyed missing with them. They were great. <laughs> there must be a huge amount of pressure on the founder of the Royal Berkshire Shooting School to, uh, to when you're out shooting, I imagine. Now, I always say that Christian Horner may not necessarily be a good driver. His job is to make sure the team win uh my job is to try and make people shoot well not necessarily as many people know do it myself <laughs> i've always said that if you're going to miss you might as well look good missing and i would imagine that with the pair of uh, pair of rigby's that kind of fulfills that you don't mind missing with them yeah indeed it was a very special day very special day amazing right so dylan the way we like to kick these podcasts off and to help our listeners get to know our guests a little bit better is to start off with some kind of quick fire either or would you rather type questions so uh, we'll each take it in turns to ask you one of these and you can just give us your immediate thoughts um so the first one is would you rather eat venison casserole for the rest of your life or pheasant sausage rolls well we're talking we're talking every meal, breakfast, lunch, and supper here. Right, well the good thing is with venison casserole, you could do lots of different things with it. So you could have it with potatoes, you could have it with pasta, you could do um you could add chili to it. So I'm it's gonna have to be the venison. And given the volume of venison that's both available in this country and the desperate need for us to create serious management plans, I'd like to think I'm doing my bit morning, noon, and night. <laughs> Um, what about would you rather have to wear wellies all day every day for the rest of your life or wear your normal shoes on all your shoot days and hosting in the field 100 percent wellington boots because i often go to meetings in wellington boots i can walk around (laughs) the house with wellington boots it means i wouldn't have to worry so uh unquestionably my le chameaux would be on all the time oh they're so comfortable aren't they i can imagine uh, sleeping in them would be manageable and I feel like you could get short, short wellies, couldn't you? And you could sort of wear those on more social occasions underneath trousers, and, and no one would, no one would even question it. Indeed, yeah, you could, you could have multiple pairs. You know, you could have your your equivalent of slippers for 
going to and from the shower in and wearing around the house and then you have your out you only actually need two items don't you you know maybe you can have your dress wellies as well <laughs> yeah <laughs> your leather lined ones yeah uh so my question to you dylan is would you rather never shoot again or never fish again very interesting question um Having been lucky enough to be in the business for over nearly 40 years now, probably longer, I found that when you're younger, you want to shoot. But as you get older, you still want to do a rural pursuit, but you enjoy the fishing. Now, given I'm the oldest person on this call, <laughs> some decades, um, I thoroughly enjoy my shooting. I love, if, I love the camaraderie of it. I love going to places that you'd never otherwise go. But I have to say... I would never not want to fish. Um, I'm very lucky. I've got a small place in Scotland. I fish the River Dee. And whilst not being a good fisherman, um, it's remarkable how you can spend 10 hours <laughs> freezing yourself in a river, just casting a fly. And, um, yeah, I am very, very fond of my fishing. So that my answer would be I would never not want to fish again. I like that answer a lot. <laughs> I'm sure the boys did too. So there's a lot of chat in the office about fishing, I can tell you that. We were talking about the difference between fishing and shooting recently, weren't we, Diggers? We were talking about how the addictive qualities of both of them. And we said that shooting is like heroin in that you just want to do lots of it and more of it. The more of it you do, the more you want to do it. And that uh, fishing is also like heroin, except only one in a thousand needles has got any heroin in it. <laughs> and bringing it to a more rural background, you may say that young men cut down trees. Old men plant them. Mm. And I, I like there's an analogy there with, you know, when you go fishing, most, in, if it's salmon fishing, it's catch and release. People are very measured about how many fish they take, even if they're fishing for trout in, a, in, a, in a, uh, uh, an artificial environment. Um, so I think that the psyche is that people want to enjoy the countryside, but they may not necessarily want to shoot things in the volume they may have done as a young man i know when i was a young man bloody hell, it was ridiculous how much i was shooting <clears throat> okay so dylan we're hoping you're going to update us on what you and louisa at eat wild have been working on with the back british game campaign but before we get into the nitty-gritty of that all for those of our listeners and i'm actually sure this is very much the minority who don't know the history of eat wild how it came out of the bga do you think you could sort of give us a brief overview of how the bga began why it was set up and uh maybe sort of what it aimed to achieve as well I think that we have to go back to 2017 when a group of very concerned individuals got together uh, in that summer and we were prophesizing that that forthcoming season, the potential was so great that um, an estate owner could be going to his uh, head keeper saying, I'm looking forward to my 10, in the middle of the season, going to my 10, 300 bird days or whatever. And halfway through the season, the keeper saying, but the problem is, sir, the game dealer doesn't want any more game. The chillers are full. What are we going to do? And there was no plan B. There was nothing in place. So um, remarkably, that season, all game did get consumed. But that is when we hit the realms of people having to pay a pound a bird for them to be collected. Mm. So um, some very generous benefactors uh, committed a large amount of money in uh, to uh, kickstart the organization and uh, Tom Adams was appointed as CEO um, and the initial uh, concept was great. People wanted to sign up. I think at one point over 600 shoots were there wanting to do it. And uh, the levy was being incredibly well supported by the guns. And then literally we hit COVID and I'm sad to say, I know of certain individuals and shoots that suffered to the extent they've closed. They had to shut down. Mm. Um, the financial pressures on every shoe was catastrophic. Um, and therefore, asking to pay 500 or or £1,000 to have an audit when you're struggling to pay the bank manager is not even an ask. And just when we thought things were getting better, we were then hit by even influenza, which was another challenge for shoot owners. So the British Game Assurance um, has been literally punched bag by circumstances alongside the whole of the sector for th things that are way beyond its control. Um, however, um, at one, you know, we got up to about 48% of all the, the shot game in the UK was assured. 
people wanted to do it. But we we understood, and it, people have to be realists. It's, it's, it's run as an organization, and I must say it's run principally the board is made up of businessmen who were looking at this in the cold light of day saying, you know, we've got to survive. So um, a year last October, if I remember rightly, um, it was suggested that the, the BGA gift um, Aim to Sustain, which for those people that don't know is an organization that, well, it's not an organization, it's an amalgam of nine organizations that come together in order to speak with a collective voice because it seemed eminently sensible that because all nine organizations supported Assurance because they were either on the main board or they sat on the advisory board of the, BG, of the BGA, they were already engaged. Many of them had committed hours to helping create the standards um, that they then would take it on and they would act as as basically picking up the baton. And I have to say, and I'm sure that quite rightly, as with any startup, do people get it right at the beginning? Probably not. Um, were the standards perhaps in some instances too onerous? We don't know. But before we actually handed the assurance scheme over, all the standards were reviewed, both the uplands and the low ground shoots. And people just need to measure on the fact that those standards, 81% of those standards are legal requirements. They're not made up by the BGA or any of the organizations because these new uh, standards have been endorsed by the Standards Committee of Aim to Sustain. And I have to say the other 19% of requirements of the standards are relatively straightforward if you're running a decent shoot. I can't imagine that. I accept that some people do get non-conformities, but the auditor is not the policeman. He's coming in to try and help you become assured because I felt from the very, very beginning that assurance is probably the ultimate ring of steel for our our shoots and our community. So to give that as an example, one estate owner that I know very well was one of the first estates to be audited by SIA Global, who happened to be the world's largest auditors and also audited Red Tractor. And he said he and his head keeper could not sleep the night before their audit. They were audited on all the different factors and there were two or three small non-conformities relating to the chiller or whatever. And he said at the end of it, I am so happy we've been audited and assured because now the Daily Mail can turn up because I know I'm squeaky clean. And similarly, many keepers have said to me, having an audit is the best tool for a head keeper to get what he wants on the shoe. So if there's a requirement in order to be assured that the chiller has to be upgraded or that things have to be done in order to comply, the land agent, the shoot owner, the shoot captain, they will have to make sure that they do it if they want to be assured. Mm. And always remember that when Red Tractor was established in the agricultural sector in the 70s, it took years for the farming community to embrace it. But now you can't sell an egg, you can't sell, you can't even sell honey without being assured. And what I feel is everyone that's supported and being involved with the BGA this concept should be incredibly proud because five, six years ago, nobody in our industry talked about assurance and we had no marketing body whatsoever. I was going to ask, what, what do you think are the things you're proudest of in terms or the BGA should be proudest of achieving? Um, I think within five years to have a situation where the work of the BGA and the desire to encourage shoots to demonstrate best practice is discussed in the House of Parliament, the House of Lords, ministers and DEFRA support it, and we have now got retailers wanting, through the good works of Louisa and indeed Liam Stokes and Tom Adams before, this doesn't happen overnight, this is a, a build-up of work, um, that we have food retailers wanting to talk to the only food marketing board in our sector. We never had a food marketing board. We've now got an organization that is promoting wild, sustainable meat to the wider community. And as I was mentioning to someone earlier today, if we can't eat all the game that we shoot within our community of 560,000 shotgun certificate holders, it's obviously bigger with those people that shoot. We have to look for new markets. People shouldn't complain about a market they should consider making a new one if they're producing a product. Therefore, we have a potential market of the population of the UK of 99.999% recurring that may not have been exposed to games. And one of Louisa's greatest achievements through the auspices of Eat Wild 
is the remarkable um, support, following, engagement from millennials. When you see some of the statistics about people that go to the gym, gymnasium, they want to get fit. They want lean, zero fat, high levels of protein with high levels of selenium. So venison fits mm. the bill for them easily. And my daughter, she was um, fortuitously captain of Oxford Brooks Tennis for two years. And part of her role was to run a social. And she said, I'm going to do a barbecue but it's only going to offer game products. And she was told probably 20 or 30 people would turn up. 160 people turned up and a group of girls turned up. And she said, I'm really sorry. I told you, I know you're vegan. You can't, you know, I've got nothing for you. They said, no, 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 we're vegan because we don't want to eat mass produced, industrially produced beef, pork and lamb. We'll eat this. And that something was a light bulb mm. movement for Eat Wild. And indeed me personally is that we've always said, oh, well, vegans will never eat our products. They will. So we're starting to make inroads. Just going back to that, um, some really interesting comments there about sort of assurance. Why, if, why is that so important for the marketing of game? If you endeavour to put a product on a shelf in a supermarket or you're a restaurateur and you everything they're buying at the moment, as I said, even the honey's assured, they want to know the provenance of that product. Yeah. Where was it produced? What's the traceability? Obviously, we have the constant debate about lead and steel. Mm -hmm. But here we are in a situation that this week where we were announcing that in the West Country, Wiltshire, Dorset, 32 schools are serving game to 3,000 children under the age of eight, producing 3,000 meals of game, 70% venison, 30% feathered every month, 3,000 meals a month. That's an Eat Wild initiative. That's what's happening. Yeah. Um, and... It's had colossal exposure, but they will not buy it. They're buying because there are shoots doing non-lead. They are buying assured non-lead shot game. So there is a market for it. And if sort of from a shoots perspective, how, how does one go about getting assured? Who's driving sort of the promotion of that? And I suppose as well, what are the, the tangible benefits for a shooter doing that? Okay, so... Um, Aim to Sustain have now funded a dedicated uh, assurance advisor who is there to do nothing other than provide a help service and facilitate people wanting to be assured. As regards to how it benefits the shoots, I would say um, through the, there are people working day in, day out, hundreds of hours behind the scenes, working with politicians. We are highly likely going to have an administration change. I've always had a fear that if we don't self-regulate we will be legislated against. And if, if the Armageddon in 2017 was that we would have all the chillers full and the game dealers didn't want to buy the game, probably Armageddon now is that we do not embrace self-regulation, we don't embrace assurance, and an organisation is bequeathed the actual assurance process that doesn't necessarily like what we do, and that would be desperate. So this is the most expensive assurance scheme as well. I'm not sure that I'm not up to date exactly because I don't think they've been published the exact costs for an audit, but to be audited and assured compared to us not being able to shoot because there is, it's the one thing that politicians understand is that you've done the right thing. You are following best practice. I beg the question, if 80% of shoots in Wales had been assured would we be looking down the wrong end of our optics about the Welsh government wanting to ban releasing a pheasant and shooting? They may have wanted to strengthen the standards, but I'm not sure whether there would be a situation we want an outright ban. We'll never know because that's water under the bridge. But if people think the way that we're going is winning, I would question it. So I'm suggesting that what would be the dream? It would be that all shoots that employ full-time gamekeepers get assured. Running in tandem with that is all shoots that have a volunteer or self-employed or helping or syndicates running their shoots is that they embrace a welfare check by their own veterinarians to demonstrate that they're doing the right thing. But we have those shoots employing gamekeepers. They, by rights, for the good of the keeper and the good of the shoot and the good of the sector in our community, I think they should be assured to demonstrate to government that we're doing the right thing. Smaller shoots 
do something because having a welfare check, we all want good animal welfare, every single one of us. Otherwise, we wouldn't do what we would do. We wouldn't love the countryside as much as we do because we're all inherently involved in it. But my concern is if we don't embrace it, it's probably wider than the realms of shooting. I worry for the British countryside because I can talk with a degree of uh, experience that when I was about 18, 19, I worked at Lake Vernway for over a year and it was akin to the Garden of Eden. The management has been run by another organization for 30 years. It now is perceived as an ecological desert. And my worry is, is if the four to 5,000, I'd love to call them game and wildlife managers, because that's what they are. They are wildlife managers as well as gamekeepers. And I totally accept the heritage and the pride which with, with which keepers call themselves. And it's not for everybody. But if we could create a situation where these guys, were, the royal family don't employ a single gamekeeper. They are countryside wardens. It's the narrative. I have one friend who's been called a wildlife ranger. He works in a national park. His new clothing is Carrymore, Berghouse, North Face. And it says on the side of his vehicle, wildlife ranger. People now come up and talk to him. They want to talk to the wildlife ranger because everyone loves a ranger. But if we could amalgamate all these things, it is semantics. I get it. But that's what the other side are doing. <laughs> but I think I think your point about you know being seen to be doing the right thing is incredibly important. And and above and beyond that, you know there are a lot of accusations that get thrown around at the shooting community. There's a lot of people talk about at the moment seem to be talking about the release of non-native game birds having a detrimental impact. And one of the points about assurance is that it demonstrates that you are sticking to you know, stocking density guidelines, for example. Um, and therefore you can say, no, no, uh, the the level at which my shoot releases is within the guidelines that the, the impact on the, the local environment is kept to a, a minimum. And it's that kind of thing that I think is super important for individual shoots to be able to understand is that everybody needs to be able to say, yep, my hands are squeaky clean um, and, and we're doing everything as we should do. And better than that, I think it's, you know, the science would suggest that a well-run shoot is net positive rather than, you know, net neutral, which is a particularly exciting thing. I think yeah. that this is in tandem with what I know Chris and you, George, have been discussing on your other podcast about sustainability, is it would be great if we could see Assurance Plus, where we can demonstrate nature recovery. Mm. So not only are you a shoot, you're actually developing the shoot now if i just mentioned to you that we have a report that lord canoel in the house of lords stated that currently they are undermining the united kingdom to have the ability to tackle climate change and it's the biggest threat to broadleaf woodlands is squirrels and people may say squirrels but someone's got to manage them now we have four to five thousand wildlife managers if they're not employed on shoots where is the public purse going to find enough money to pay people to manage? We're talking about planting 33 million trees. We're creating a McDonald's every time we plant a woodland for squirrels and deer. But we have to have somebody that can look after it. And I also think what's interesting when we talk about the ability to demonstrate what we do is that DEFRA have announced that under the Sustainable Farming Initiative, there will now be an ability for species management with environmental land management to support the population of endangered species and biodiversity in general. So therefore, we can do species management to support endangered species, which brings to my mind salmon, grey partridges, curlews. So are we starting to understand that people will now be able to, under the Sustainable Farming Initiative, control these predators we need the green light to do so. Does that, does that mean funding for predator control? Is that what that means? Well, the, the, the Sustainable Farming Initiative is all part of the new environmental land management schemes, which is incredibly complex and seems glacially slow in being moved forward. But I do hope that decision makers understand that some of the gamekeepers in this country are, without doubt, the best custodians we could wish for the countryside. There simply is not enough countryside wardens employed by the Forestry Commission or National Nature Reserves or to manage all the countryside. And it would be a terribly sad day 
if shooting as we know it today doesn't warrant gamekeepers because we've lost 5,000 wildlife rangers. I think we should, uh, as a Guns on Pegs team, get James Horner grant under the SFI to control squirrels in his back garden in Tunbridge Wells. He, I think he's got I a mean, tally of 200 and something over yeah, the last we haven't, couple of years. We haven't had an update from him recently. We'll have to get on on that. I've heard he's a retail outlet in London. He's actually selling squirrel coats now. <laughs> <laughs> squirrel coat, I think. One small squirrel coat. On on squirrels, though, just very quickly, and I've got to do this because um, I wouldn't forgive myself if I didn't. An excellent article was published on Scribehound by Guy Adams on the topic of dray poking which sounds like enormous fun. So I'm going to have to go out and buy a 30-foot lofting pole <laughs> and take advantage of the, the cold weather when they're all tucked up in their drays. You can get the government to pay for your or your lofting pole. Yeah, enough. what a good idea. <laughs> we said we'd talk about Eat Wild and particularly back British game, um, Dylan. I know Louise has been doing a huge amount of work on social media and visiting um, you know, the millennials, as you said, uh, promoting wild meat. Can you um, go back to what is, how did Eat Wild come about um, and what is this new initiative? Louisa started Eat Wild as a customer-facing platform about 18 months, two years ago. Um, And she's been running that. And then obviously when she was appointed CEO uh, early in 2023, she's driven that forward. As part of her work, she has thought outside the box. So... Yes, she was at the game fair. Yes, she's been to country fairs. But she went to Carfest. Carfest is a musical stroke car festival. Uh, thousands of people go there, of which people that wouldn't necessarily listen to this podcast or participate in the activities that we do attend. I would be surprised if a single visitor to Carfest (laughs) Carfest is really near where I live and uh, whenever we go it's the most sort of middle class festival that you you could imagine and people are sort of there in the front row with their with their picnics um, of sort of the front of the stage but it's a great uh, it's a great festival and I was delighted to see that Louisa was there and she had some real I think that's what you were going to say Dylan the feedback that she um, she had from from some of the tasters and things that, that she was giving out there was absolutely bogg- mind-boggling uh, um, to me. I'm, I think you're going to touch on that now a little bit. Well, I think that when you have people come up to a stand saying, well, what animal is a venison? These are the 90.9.9% of the British public that don't even know what game is. They were saying, what game is it? Is it Nintendo? Is it Minecraft? They have no, they have no understanding of our world. And therefore... It is a colossal job to market to a new market. But um, people will be amazed to hear that I touched on the schools down in Dorset and the 3,000 meals a month using game. We now have London Stadium, Wembley, the Emirates and Pride Park. They're now putting game on their menus. We have got stadiums hosting the Six Nations that are that have ordered up to 15,000 wild Eat wild pies for each match. Wow. We've got one supplier that is really supportive of our sector, sold 500 kilos, half a tonne of game terrine just in December. Goodness me. Aramark are taking three tonnes of game a month. So this is eat wild working, but it needs money. And when people say, oh, Dylan... I'm all right, I give my birds away or the beaters take it or I give it to the local pub. If it goes to the local pub, somebody has to market game so that when Mr. and Mrs. Miggins walk in, we want them to order pheasant or partridge as opposed to pork or lamb. That's a cost and it's expensive. And similarly, what Louisa and Leon, who is uh, the culinary executive that helps uh, BGA, we have to create new products that will work for the restaurant industry. So yesterday I was on the phone with the culinary director of an operation. They have 12 outlets through the United Kingdom. He could not believe the opportunities to him. Leon is going to go in, cook for all their senior chefs, the margins, the ability to cook quickly, but it's, but it's sustainable. It's a really good thing for them to get behind. Um, I think that that layered with, you know, we have... The Ivy, we've got Mosaic pubs. 
These have all come on board in the last three months. And they're all funded by all the Leon's works funded by Eat Wild. All funded. um, the, The concept of how Eat Wild is funded is all the guns embrace back British game. It doesn't matter whether you're on a syndicate that shoots 30 birds a day or whether you shoot 300 bird days or whether you go pigeon shooting or whether you go stalking, but you contribute to a levy. And just to put that into context, when you turn your lights on, you're paying a levy. You're paying a green levy. When you walk up the steps to go on an aeroplane on your holiday, you're paying a levy. We have to encourage those people that have shot the game to say, guys, somebody's got to market the game that you've shot. And all we're asking for is 50p a bird, which is probably two cartridges. And on the basis of what Digby told me, that uh, on Guns on Pegs survey, the average size day in the United Kingdom is 140 bird day. Mm. We're talking at £8.70 a gun per day to help market the game that has been shot. Now, I would argue that if we cannot find a home for all the game we shoot... It puts into question everything we do. Because if we cannot find a home for the game we're eating, I'm afraid to say we are beyond being unsustainable. We're indefensible. George, how do you think my father's going to react to being whacked with a bill for £15 for the 30 (laughs) pheasants we shot this season? (laughs) Well, I've been sort of slightly involved in some of the conversations around back British game, as have you, Diggers, haven't you? So I think it's a really cool idea because it is something. And I think if this if there was a weakness in the the levy with with BGA, it was it was quite focused, I think, on commercial shooting and and let days. And this feels like something that even a small farm shoot like mine, Mm. our families or your family's diggers can get involved with. And I'll tell you the other thing that I think is super cool about Back British Game is it's something that you know you can pay your levy by and you should pay your levy i think but you can also wear your allegiance on your sleeve or rather on your chest can't you because i know louisa has been uh, working hard to design a bunch of of merch that people can buy and so you can go onto the um back british game is it the back british game website i'm sure we'll find a link somewhere you can either go via eat wild or back british game and they're fun things but we want it to be fun we i can't say that we're rocket science Back British farming was a great initiative. Mm. This has a positive feel to it. People should want to back British game because as one estate owner said to me, Dylan, I'm so engaged with this concept about getting the guns to understand that they've shot the game. If they don't want to support the levy, I'll put all the bag in the boot of their car. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) Dylan, that leads on to my next question for you, actually, which is uh, sort of what is back British Games message to guns, if you were to kind of sum it it up? I would say 85% of game in this country that is shot is exported. We need to get more people eating game because ultimately that is why people go shooting. We are producing food. And just to put it into context, I found some old papers the other day from 1977. Game dealers were offering to go and collect in the feather game birds paying £2.40 a pheasant. Wow. Paying £2.40 a pheasant in the feather, nearly £5 a brace. If you do an inflation calculator, it comes out something like £11 on a bird. Goodness. Now, my argument, I've always wanted to put value back into the game, into game, not to put on the plate, which I really believe in because I love eating game personally, but it seems inherently wrong to me that... We cannot argue to any administration that we are sustainable if we're having to pay for the game to be taken away. That cannot be right. If we can put value back into game where the shoots are getting 25p a bird, 50p a bird, probably a premium if you are assured and non-led, less if you're not, encouraging those people that have made the right decision to get audited, assured, and embrace back British game and eat wild because I can't really think of another way that we can encourage people to get behind it. And also I would say the BGA board have agreed that the the, the, the budgets that Louisa needs are not insignificant, but if everybody embraced back British game, we could create almost the equivalent of a bank. And therefore, when other organizations want funding to do research projects such as the GWCT or whatever, 
there will be a fund so that we don't always keep hitting the same people every year for more money for various projects. You know, it's reputed that we shoot, no one really knows, sadly, between 14, 15, 16 million birds, excluding grouse. Well, if everybody engaged back British game, can you imagine what a budget of 7 million a year could do for our organisations mm. if it was spent wisely and considered in order to make real differences, demonstrating the British countryside relies in such a large extent to our game and wildlife managers. And, uh, you're, uh, Dylan, I think you're absolutely right that that you know it, it's going to need that kind of grassroots gun level support. You know, the guns are the ones who need to support this. But mm. this is a podcast aimed at people running shoots and shoot owners, shoot managers, gamekeepers. So what is it that those guys can do to get that message out to their guns what is it what you know how are they going to, going to go about that and they've got to they've got to spin it as well haven't they they've got to spin it to their customers that they should be paying this money so i would say that some people on this podcast listening may have already received it but i'm up to letter 283 that i've personally written to people that i know that run shoots and have been supporters of bga explaining we're not asking the shoot owners and shoot managers to fund this they will be responsible for the assurance and the auditing. That's their side of the deal. All we're saying is, can you please, on the bottom of invoices, ask the guns, and we've got the supporting collateral to prove why we need to do this and the work we're doing and the value of what the value is to the guns, asking for a voluntary 50p a bird on the bottom of the invoices. And I have to say, some of the uh, larger sporting agencies, such as Roxton's and... Uh, Gordon Robinson at Purdy's and uh, Mackenzie Chapel and nearly all of them have been collecting immense amounts of money, asking the guns, will you support? And they say, of course. Now, I understand historically some of them would question, why are we funding assurance? That is the responsibility of the shoot owners and the shoot managers and probably the people on this call. However, it's the guns that pulled the trigger. It's the guns that shot the game. And they should have a sense of responsibility to say, look, is it going to be guilt money? Probably in some people's eyes, it is. They haven't taken the birds home, but at least they can turn around and say, I did my bit. I contributed 50p a bird towards helping those game birds being marketed in order that they can go into the, the food chain. And therefore, all we're asking for the people on this podcast is, guys, when you're doing your deposit invoices in the next month, six weeks, We've got the supporting collateral that you can add as a flyer saying this year we are delighted to back British Game by asking you to support Eat Wild with 50p a bird. There's no VAT. We can. It's a very easy process from the fiscal point of view. So it doesn't cause any issues with VAT or uh, profits. It, and then we can send a pro forma invoice mid-season and then we can send a final account for the accountancy function at the end of the season. So it's very easy. But there's, yes, there's time and there's a cost. I accept that for preparing the invoices and collecting the money. So the, so the, the shoot is collecting money Absolutely. in their bank account. And then they will say to um, Louisa, um, this is how many 50Ps we've collected this year. Whilst we've been talking, I have just received an email from one of the biggest sporting agents asking to, us to send them an invoice for a four, a big four-figure sum. That's so encouraging, isn't it? Can I can I just can, just clarify that for because I think I do think that there will be some some shoot owners who would be potentially wary of of asking for more money. Have you got materials that, or has has Back British Game got materials that can be sent to shoots to put up in the shoot room to to send out with um with booking invoices and and that kind of thing that that to to help explain why. We spend a lot of money getting the right information in a way that it can be sent to the guns so they can they get it instantly. In addition to what Louise is doing with the, the T-shirts and so forth, promoting British Game, which are quite fun, bringing a bit of humour into it and making it, you know, it's, it's our fun, it's our sport. And people sometimes don't like to hear that, but I actually enjoy doing what I do. And in conjunction with that, we're going to create car stickers and people just want to be part of the club. I would love to get to a situation that um, some shoot owners turn around and say, do you mean to say you don't want to market the game you've shot? Mm. It's a bit like smoking in a hospital. Yeah. You just don't do it. <laughs> what if Dylan, you were a gun um, on a shoot day, and they they didn't they didn't have that levy, and you personally wanted to 
pay your 50p per bird. Is there a way that you can do that sort of separately as a single gun rather than go through the shoot? Yeah, what we've done is Louisa has set up a, an online payment function, which, and we've had this a lot. It also happens with private shoots where there's no selling of days whatsoever, and they can make a one-off payment at the end of the year as a donation, which they can contribute because we're all in this together. It doesn't matter whether you're the 30 bird shoot, let nobody be under the misunderstanding that if big shoots, inverted commas, get banned by government, that it won't affect the smaller shoots. It will be the ultimate broad brush. So this is nothing about a them and us, big shoots, little shoots. This is about the British shooting community backing British game to help the British countryside. The other big thing about game marketing is when we're out and about at dinner parties or, I don't know, on the tube or whatever, chatting to someone about what you get up to, shooting is a a subject that you don't really want to necessarily bring up to someone who, who you don't know if, what they feel of it. Um, and if if game is being marketed and game becomes mainstay, popular, you see it on the menu every, everywhere, then what we do is going to be become more and more popular or less and less frowned upon. And that is a massive benefit to um to shooting but also to each individual to the shoots when they were in the, when they're in the pub and people sort of see that you've been out on a shoot day they're not going to frown and um quibble about it they're going to say oh well thank you so much for the pheasants you provide me with kind of thing louisa has always said every pheasant that's at at by a new by a non-shooter is another friend here yeah. every game bird eaten by a non-shooter becomes another friend and Given that we have a population of circa circa 66 million and we have 85% of our game shop being exported, there is an awful lot of opportunity. What I would love is a situation that the demand becomes such that the processors start to feed some of, if possible, the money back in to the, the shoots and the owners. But I would caveat that, that, yes, I have no problem in... Um, identifying this one guy, Stuart McIntyre, who's a head keeper out in uh, Cambridgeshire, the way he handles game is almost like the way some people would handle gold ingots. Every game bird is weighed. He, a, a one kilo pheasant is a, a key product. So they're weighed, so they know. No, no shepherd, no stockman would take his stock to market without grading it prior. But I can remember once being at a game dealer's when a keeper turned up on a Monday afternoon. So therefore, we would presume that he had not really shot Sunday or Monday morning with over 200 pheasants in the back of a Toyota truck. It was the end of September. And as the game dealer said to me, he said, Dylan, watch this. And the the keeper said, hello, Mr. X, I've come. How much can you pay me for this? And he said, I'll pay you one pound. And that's for the pigeon. (laughs) because the rest of it was green. It was appalling. And I think for shoots not to have, some shoots don't have chillers, but we're producing food. You have to ask, can that be right? Can that be right? So I think that good game handling, chilling, not chucking them all on a trailer on top of each other and then eventually at three o'clock taking them out, that can't be right. And you can't expect the processors to pay they will always pay on the worst bird that comes into the game dealership. And therefore, if there was grading done, a little I know time is of the essence. A lot of these guys, the keepers, are under such pressures, they haven't got time to grade. But if it could be done whilst they're actually shooting on the game cart, their ideas, I, by, I am naive when it comes to what all the answers are. All I'm saying is we need to embrace this because we have to find the answers. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't agree more. Hundred percent on chillers. I think a lot of the smaller shoots might be might be thinking to themselves. Well, you know, we haven't got the funds for a chiller. You know, we here on the farm are a very small shoot, privately funded, haven't got a huge amount of money to to do it with. But you can get a second hand fridge off eBay for next to no money, and then you just put a little, uh, you know, build a little rack out of wood, and you can hang. You know, we can hang a, at least a full day's. Uh, certainly everything that's left over once the beaters and everybody's taken their brace home there's plenty of space keeps it all fresh and it's well worth it because it means you haven't got the you know if you're like me 
I can either process our birds on the Sunday or the following Sunday or the following Saturday. And so having that, knowing that they're in the chiller gives me the peace of mind to know that if uh, something comes up on the Sunday immediately after the shoot day, they're going to be fine next week. But also, George, we had a situation that I was very, I heard so many times about the chiller being so expensive. So I found a company that imports all the components, for all chillers in the UK. They're FSA approved. They came up with a scheme that they will deliver fully made with hangers. All you need is a, a, a power supply and a hose pipe. And they will bring you a chiller that will accommodate 1,500 birds that works out at five pound a week over a five-year period. Seriously? Wow. Absolutely. It was all set up. And we went to the game fair and those chillers were on the stand. So what happens is these guys now that have done that deal, in the summer, they're using them for all their venison. Mm, yeah. But it's, it's finding answers. Our sector is quite good at coming up with problems and saying, oh, this is a problem, this is a problem. The key thing is, fine, that's the problem, but how do we get around it? So we've done that. We can get chillers delivered. It may be £6 a week now, but I'd argue that um, it may be a pretty good investment. Yeah, that's fascinating. I didn't I didn't know that um, about the chillers. Dylan, as we sort of begin to, to wrap things up, I have a final question for you. So if you had the power to change just one thing about shooting and everyone had to comply upon pain of death, what would that be? Um, it's probably two-pronged. Um, everyone has to back British game and pay 50p a bird. And the other thing is, and it's not a plug, but it's something that I discussed with Digby early on, is having been fortunate to be in this community all my working life, I have come across some of the most amazing gamekeepers, wildlife managers, and they simply don't know how good they are. And similarly, I've been to estates where the head keeper may have been there for 30, 40 years, and Bob, the underkeeper, has been there for 25 years, and by pure default, really, um, Bob gets the job as head keeper. So the, the methods and the processes continue. So in conjunction with two other people that many people on this call will know, uh, Richard Leach, uh, who works for Brights and works uh, for Duffields in the game feed side, and Tim Bowie, who um, has worked for the GWCT and was a land agent and now uh, is involved in a very significant um, recruitment industry, industry, we have created a company called Mere Opus, where what we're trying to do is to marry on a highly confidential basis, the ability for keepers, land managers, keepers and stalkers and gillies to access a questionnaire on a totally confidential basis, providing their information, what they want to do, where do they want to move to, what would be their ideal job, with also, given that to for a gamekeeper today to be able to, to, inverted commas, trade and do his job with the relevant training courses could cost up to £5,000. If we can find an estate, individuals that have done all those training courses, that's a pretty good saving. But also, the estates can now contact us totally confidentially and say, what we're looking for is a 35-year-old married individual that will help us restore our wild English partridge or to run our environmental scheme alongside with a shoot. And we will then present them with five individuals and say, these five can do it. You choose which one you like. So it it takes all the effort and the cost out of the shoot and the estate, but it gives the keepers an amazing platform to be introduced to jobs that would never otherwise be. And if I tell you in three weeks since we launched it, over 200 keepers have accessed the questionnaire. So, and some of them have said, I'm not looking for a new, I don't want to leave for four or five years. It doesn't matter. But if we could, we run a highly professional industry. We need to demonstrate that and have people that want to embrace, and I know it's not for everybody, but shooting as we know it today will not be the same in 10 years' time. So how does that translate into your edict then, your this edict that you have with the powers that we've bestowed upon you to make everybody comply with your wishes? What would you have them all do? <laughs> I think it will be natural progression. And if Elms comes off and it goes through Parliament, where you could have up to 25% of farm incomes being derived from non-food production, 
Game and wildlife managers will have more responsibility financially than some of the real estate staff on the estates because it will not only be deriving big chunks of money from government, but we also have to understand that having asked a very good friend of mine who's in very senior within one land agency firm, he contacted all the other land agents in the UK. And I asked the question, if shooting was banned tomorrow, what would be the effect on the capital value of that farm or estate in the event it had a shoot? And I was invited down to the offices and the gentleman told me, Dylan, we cannot believe it. It's between 25 and 60% of capital value will be lost. So that's a big number if you're a trustee or a land agent managing on behalf of your owner an asset where you could say, I'm really sorry, we didn't do much about it. We didn't embrace back British game. We didn't embrace uh, getting our keepers to be called wildlife rangers. Um, and uh, I think you've got to do a write down of three million quid because we ain't got to shoot anymore. I absolutely love that that thinking that we actually hold the power here because the government need the wildlife and game managers. The wildlife, uh, the, the government needs the gamekeepers, needs the shoot, needs shooting in order to hit their targets they've set themselves. How would the Daily Mail look if we turned around and said 4,000 rangers are about to be made unemployed? Yes. It's a very different sentence from 4,000 gamekeepers are about to be made unemployed, isn't it, from a yeah. PR perspective? And I would say, George, a lot of the people that would fall into that bracket genuinely are wildlife rangers. They are brilliant at managing the countryside. They're outstanding. And they should be applauded. I don't think there's any argument from us. Uh, Dylan, thank you ever so much. It's been absolutely fascinating. Mm, yeah, thank you, Dylan, very much indeed. That's really appreciate it. The problem of being an obsessive. <laughs> uh, right, I think we're pretty much there. Um, as always, do get in touch if you'd like to let us know what you thought. You can email us at pod at gunsonpegs.com. We'll be back soon with another episode. But until then, stay safe out there and thanks for listening. Uh-huh.